Just about 7 p.m., you're tuned to listener-sponsored non-commercial WBAI in New York City, 99.5 FM, streaming at WBAI.org. Time now for Talk Out of School. And welcome to our show, Talk Out of School on WBAI Radio, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. My guest this week is Tim Schwab, the author of an important new book entitled The Bill Gates Problem, Reckoning with the Myth of the Good Billionaire. As many of you probably know, Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation have had a profound impact on our schools here in New York City and nationwide, including on mayoral control, the Common Core, high-stakes testing, and student privacy. But first, some local news. Mayor Adams released his preliminary budget, and though he said he intends not to cut some of the programs that he had initially threatened to cut, like summer school and community schools, the budget still contains more than $700 million of cuts for the Department of Education next year. Though he claims this won't affect schools, it's difficult to see how that could be true. And many of the items to be cut are not are only obscurely described. It is certainly the case that there is no funding allocated to lower class size, which was mandated by the state law passed in 2022. And so it is likely that class sizes will increase instead. Meanwhile, hearings are taking place on mayoral control, which is due to lapse, be continued or amended by June of this year. And there was a terrific article in Politico on how many state legislators are gauging their views on this in connection to Adams' resistance to lowering class size. I'll put a link to the article in the resources section of WBAI in the podcast so you can take a look, along with my testimony at the Manhattan hearings last week on how the refusal of the last three mayors to lower class size despite campaign promises, and in many cases, the way they misuse state funds, shows how little accountability there has been under this governance system. You can still submit your views on the matter of mayoral control to the state education department with the deadline of January 31st, and I urge you to do so. I'll also put the link in the resource section of the blog. But now I want to turn to my guest, Tim Schwab, who has written what I think is a really important book on the outsized influence of Bill Gates and his foundation on so many different areas of public policy here in the United States and internationally. The book is called The Bill Gates Problem, Reckoning with the Myth of the Good Billionaire. Welcome to Talk Out of School, Tim Schwab. Thank you so much for having me, Lanny. I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders and writing this book. And uh, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, and you're one of these giants. You certainly helped me. Um, you took time out of your schedule to generously explain your own adventures with the Gates Foundation. So maybe you can share some of those as we talk today, this evening. Yeah, we, we fought a lot of battles with the Gates Foundation here in New York City, and one of them was fairly successful, and we'll get to that. 
but first, can you explain why you wrote this book and what set you on your journey to investigate the influence of Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation on public policy and why you called it the myth of the good billionaire? So I approached this book as a journalist and the job of journalism, as you learn it in schools in the United States, is to afflict the comforted and to comfort the afflicted. And if that's your mission, then Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation should be among the most scrutinized uh, figures and institutions in the world because they are so wealthy and so powerful. You know, every year Forbes comes out with a list of the 10 most powerful people in the world. And Bill Gates is usually on that list. You know, whether he's in the top 10 or top 100 or top 1,000, he's certainly one of the most powerful people in the world. Um, he's meeting with elected leaders. He's shaping government priorities and also government budgets. Um, so the work of the Gates Foundation today affects billions of people. It affects the bottom lines of major multinational companies that partner with the Gates Foundation. So it's really vitally important that journalists scrutinize the Gates Foundation to ask it hard questions and really challenge the power that it exercises and question whether this is you know, good for democracy, good for society to have a multi-billionaire in Seattle to be able to turn his private wealth into political power through philanthropy. And the myth of the good billionaire, what does that refer to? I mean, fun, I mean, this book is about Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation, but it's really a case study for a bigger problem about extreme wealth. When we allow people to become this wealthy as Bill Gates is, it's more money than they could ever possibly spend on themselves. So we know that they will use it for political purposes, if not campaign contributions, if not lobbying, then as Bill Gates shows us through philanthropy. So, uh, you know, this idea that there is a good billionaire, um, you know, certainly as the political debate has, has ramped up around should billionaires exist, Bill Gates has long been the most potent counterpoint because of his heroic and seemingly altruistic philanthropic um, interventions in, in public health and public education and in other areas. So he's really uh, the, the strongest example of what the good billionaire can do, which is why I think it's important to really make him the case study. So you write how the foundation is a charity, but also a political organization. Can you explain what that means and how large the foundation actually is? So the foundation is large and it's getting larger every year. Right now, it's the bank account is $67 billion. Um, that money is invested in anything and everything. And most year, it, it gets a return on investment of billions of more dollars. So over the years, through that investment income and through new contributions from Bill Gates and maybe Warren Buffett, you're going to see the foundation get bigger. Um, and it's spending out um, a small portion of that money every year. It is billions of dollars. It sounds like a lot of money, but not relative to what Bill Gates or the Gates Foundation could spend. Um, and that money is being used really to influence things like public health and public education. So these are public policies that I think all of us would hope and want to be organized in a public and democratic process. But when you allow um, a multi-billionaire like Bill Gates to essentially buy himself a seat at the decision-making table through philanthropy, that is political influence. And so in this book, that's really how I approach the Gates Foundation as a very powerful private political organization, uh, one that is exercising a great deal of influence over all of our lives, even here in the United States through public education. So your book covers a whole lot of areas in which 
Bill Gates and his foundation have been extremely influential in directing public policy, including education primarily in the U.S., but also abroad in agriculture, public health, and other areas, causing a vast amount of, quote, collateral damage, right? And I highly recommend the book for people who would like to learn about all these other areas. But tonight, uh, this is Talk Out of School, and I'd like to focus on education. You write that instead of creating more equity, which is their claim, the Gates Foundation have been a driver of inequity. Can you explain? Yeah, I think that Bill Gates is not only a driver of inequity, but a totem of inequity. Um, this is a man today worth $120 billion, and his personal fortune is growing over time. We have, it's one of many mythologies surrounding Bill Gates, this idea that he's giving away all of his money. He's not. He remains very interested in wealth accumulation and wealth hoarding. His wealth is growing over time, and it's a certain paradox. And I think it's a real totem of the inequality and the inequity we see all around us. When so many people have so little, why does it make sense to organize, organize our economy to allow one man to become this obscenely wealthy? Um, in terms of you know in, him, him driving inequity through the Gates Foundation, the foundation, across all the areas in which it works, it generally takes this beggars can't be choosers model of social change. So Bill Gates um, has his own narrow ideas about how to fix public policies like public education. Um, and he's able, because of his great wealth, to turn those ideas into action, to have them gain traction in a way that's much more difficult for the rest of us who are, are limited because we don't have that kind of wealth. So, you know, the Bill Gates, his own children, for example, go to the most elite, most expensive private school in Seattle. Bill Gates himself also went there. They have all kinds of opportunities and, you know, a rich um, educational experience. It's about creativity and critical thinking and enlightenment. So Bill and Melinda Gates don't, uh, you know, they don't offer that same vision uh, of education for the poor students in the poor school districts that they serve. For them, they have a much more limited idea about how to improve education, and it doesn't look anything like the rich experiences that they've given their own children. So the foundation's motto that all lives have equal value, it really just doesn't stand up against the now two decades of work that we've seen them do in all these areas. Right. I, for a while, Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation were financing all these polemics against reducing class size, which, you know, obviously we had to resist here in New York City, um, whereas, you know, the private school where he sent his kids had small class sizes, and he himself had acknowledged in an autobiographical piece how important it was to him to have small class sizes and a, an amount of freedom in directing his own education, actually, and his own interests in technology. So we always found that rather hypocritical the way he was pushing a completely different agenda for public school kids here in New York City and across the country than the sort sort of education that his family enjoyed, but also specifically fighting those sorts of reforms that might provide some of the same opportunities. Can you talk a little bit two of the initiatives in which the Gates Foundation took a leading role nationally and in New York City in driving changes in education, the Common Core Standards, which were pushed on our public schools, primarily by Bill Gates, and also teacher evaluation based on test scores, always with the cooperation and collaboration, though, of the Federal Department of Education under Arne Duncan. Yes, yeah, so these both of these big um, educational initiatives that the Gates Foundation pushed were during the Obama administration. 
And it's a good, uh, it's a good place to, to understand that, you know, the solutions that Bill Gates brings to the table, it's, it's a mistake to see him always as his puppet master pulling strings because he really operates in a wider political network. And with the Obama administration, he really found a kind of mind meld, a, a similar thinking partner in terms of pu public policy, in terms of neoliberalism, in terms of the kind of primacy of the private sector and market-based solutions. So during the uh, Obama administration, you really saw a lot of synergy happening, a direct collaboration happening between the Gates Foundation and the federal government. And... So Common Core Educational Standards, um, I guess the way I tell it in the book is that if you think about Bill Gates' career at Microsoft, his career at the Gates Foundation looks a lot different. Uh, it, it makes a lot more sense. We look at it differently if you think about it in those ways. Uh, we've either forgotten or forgiven Bill Gates' first chapter at Microsoft. But, you know, just two decades ago, he was one of the most reviled people on earth. People were throwing pies in his face. The Simpsons was lampooning his kind of monopoly nerd overcompensation complex. And Microsoft was one of the most embattled uh, corporations on earth because of its monopolistic practices. Um, so just in the same way that Bill Gates thought that Microsoft's operating system, Windows, should uh, be the, set the standard for the unfolding computer revolution, Bill Gates also believed that as a philanthropist, that U.S. education should have a new operating standard, which was a new set of educational standards about what students should be learning or what students should know at the end of the year in English and in mathematics. Um, and the way Gates described this at times is the importance of these common core educational standards was in terms of the market potential that they opened up. So, if you have 50 states all operating according to the same educational standard, this makes it much easier for uh, commercial companies like Microsoft to produce new software, new textbooks that could service a much bigger market. The idea is that instead of having to produce um, a, a, an educational software device or a, a textbook it, you know, to to change it 50 times for 50 different educational standards, this was going to help the innovators once they saw this huge new market of students that they could sell a single product across all 50 states. This was going to inspire the private sector to develop all of these new and innovative products that Bill Gates believed would help solve education. And this is kind of part and parcel of Bill Gates' neoliberal um, approach, his sensibility that he brings to philanthropy. This idea that products, commercial products, solve complex social problems related to poverty. You know, in public health, he's a big believer in pharmaceuticals. Like you give people drugs and vaccines and that, that cures disease and saves lives. That's true, but it doesn't really address you know, the underlying issue of a health system. You have to have doctors to administer the medicines, to prescribe them. You have to have roads to get to the clinics so that people can access them. So Bill Gates and all of the work he does, he likes these kind of silver bullet solutions. He certainly likes this idea of the, of the private sector being involved in public policy and likes the idea of developing products. Um, so this was the kernel. Um, well, this is part of the story. The Common Core story is such a vast story, and I feel... Uh, a bit bashful explaining on your show because, you, you know, you have such a personal history with it and know so much probably more, far more than I do. Well, um, I just wanted to interject that one of the yeah. analogies he made with the Common Core was that when the standard outlet was created, 
to plug oh, so many new appliances could be invented and marketed. So he wanted a standard outlet, which was the common core so that all schools could, you know, be plugged into it and all this entrepreneurial energy would be unleashed that, as you said, could market to every school in the country and that there would also be uniform tests and uniform um, ways of evaluating teachers based on the results of those tests and a uniform data collection, which we will get to uh, in a second, which would collect all the data from all the teachers and the students, and therefore, by its very existence, allow us to see which was the most successful in improving education and student outcomes. So it was really the sort of master plan that would envelop and connect all, every single public school in the country to this vast armature that would be connected really through the Gates Foundation, but then with its tentacles out to the free market. So, um, but the, the teacher evaluation system, I want to get to that as well. Can you describe what happened in Hillsborough, Florida, where the foundation spent millions of dollars, but the district spent even more money to create the system of teacher evaluation based on test scores and bonuses tied to student test scores? But what were the, what did the results actually show after that? Um, yeah, and this is also, I think, the story of the Common Core, too, where is at the Common Core, you know, you develop all of these um, educational standards that are widely adopted initially. I think 45 states in the District of Columbia adopt them, but there hadn't been a pilot. There hadn't really been field studies to substantiate them. And a number of studies now have shown, I think, that they have not actually clearly improved education. And that's a theme you see throughout the Gates Foundation's work in public education and throughout all of the Gates Foundation's work. It does, the Gates Foundation does an incredibly good job in public relations, funding journalism, funding universities, funding think tanks to give the appearance that it is a highly effective and nimble private sector actor. But we now have two decades we can look back on their interventions and show in many of the areas, in most of the areas where it's worked, not only is it failing to do what it set out to do, in this case, improve education, revolutionize education, but it's actually causing harm. And maybe that's, um, and maybe that's what we see with the teacher evaluation project. So Bill Gates early on decided that the real problem with education is that we have low performing teachers, but we don't have a way to weed them out. And that if we could improve uh, measures and evaluations of teacher and get high performing teachers and reward them and get those uh, working in, in especially in challenging school districts, that that single intervention would revolutionize American education. And, you know, of course, the, the wider context is a lot of experts and teachers who have said, well, that really isn't the single most important factor. The single most important factor is wealth and poverty. Um, these are the, you know, the social conditions that surround the school districts, how much money they have and the resources they have. Um, so it, there was a period of years in maybe 2012, 13, 14. If you look at the Gates Foundation, what they were writing about, what they were talking about, the op-eds that Bill Gates was publishing in the New York Times, um, it was all about Hillsborough County, which is Tampa Bay, Florida. They set up this pilot project where they said this uh, project will demonstrate that we know how to uh, measure and evaluate teachers and that we have um, a system of incentives and disincentives where we, where we can show the high performing teachers and reward them and weed out the low performing teachers. And, you know, for years they pumped up, they hyped up this uh, pilot project and all the success they were having and how they thought that they would use this pilot. 
and you know broaden it out, scale it up, and this was going to revolutionize education. Um, but the Tampa Bay Times, um, and I love to point out when journalists do really good investigative journalism because it's so rare. Um, but the Tampa Bay Times did a um, looked at the effects of Gates's teacher evaluation, and they saw incredible bloat, if not waste, in terms of the, the way the money was spent, and that it did not improve education as Gates has claimed. Um, and you know, one of the kind of the quirks of that story, maybe you'd mentioned it, but that. Um, it was hugely costly to Hillsborough County, this, this pilot project. I think it went way over budget, way over what they thought that it would do. And the Gates Foundation, it, you know, the critics say that the Gates Foundation really left the county on the hook to pay for all of this, potentially bankrupting costs. Um, and the Gates Foundation said, well, we only promised up to $100 million. Um, you know, the way this project uh, functioned, and the, this is the way that a lot of the Gates Foundation's work functions, was as a public-private partnership. So the Gates Foundation is putting in money, but it's also expecting a school district or a nation state in its work in public health to also put in money. This and, is, uh, and usually much more than the Gates Foundation itself was contributing. Yeah, and I think that was the case here, where the Gates had a big idea and they offered to put some money out for this pilot project in Hillsborough County, and it turned into a complete boondoggle in, in a huge waste of money. Um, so I think that that is um, a really important uh, feature of the Gates Foundation when we're thinking about accountability is all of the public funds, the taxpayer benefits, the taxpayer subsidies that go into all of the Gates Foundation's projects. Bill Gates is not just spending his money. He's also spending our money and influencing our money. Tens of billions of dollars from nations around the globe go into co-funding the Gates Foundation's work or through tax benefits or tax subsidies we give to the Gates family in the United States. And this is another example of this. And this is another reason why we need to have accountability and we need to be taking a close look at what Gates is doing with our money. So one of, one of the studies that actually was done by the Rand Corporation found that instead of ensuring that the most effective teachers would teach the, the highest need students, the result was the opposite. And so it failed on so many different levels, as the Common Core did. I mean, uh, on the NAEPs, which are the only semi-reliable tests, these are the national tests, um, test scores went down after the Common Core was introduced. And it, it really did uh, harm um, many students. I'm worried that even though nobody uses the words Common Core anymore, that it is still infecting school systems around the country. And it's a very peculiar way of teaching uh, reading and even math. Um, then there was the in bloom fiasco in which the foundation spent more than $100 million to build this massive database that would collect the personal student data of at least eight states and district, including New York, and then uh, systematize the data and make it available to ed tech companies to build their tools around. We were very involved in this fight in New York State. We actually started and raised the alarm first here, which went across the country. Um, and um, many of the groups that the Gates Foundation Fund called the Future Privacy Forum, which you would think would care about privacy, the Data Quality Campaign, and many other advocacy groups fiercely defended this initiative, but we we won. And by 2014, parent pushback had caused every state and district to pull out of InBloom and the company closed its doors. 
Before that, I had actually foiled the communications between the Gates Foundation and our state education department, had to wait a year and a half for the emails. When we finally got them, they were shocking. Um, and one of the things that it said, and I think this is um, reflects a larger issue with the Gates Foundation that you write about, um, the secrecy involved in this. The foundation had actually tried to make the state education department promise that they would not say anything publicly about their plans within Bloom, even to the Board of Regents, which are our state board of education, about in Bloom without getting prior agreement from the Gates Foundation. Literally, they were not supposed to say a single word without getting it passed first through the Gates Foundation and their PR machine, even though this is a publicly elected governmental agency with the responsibility to inform our state education department, inform the public. We also found out that the contract between the Gates Foundation and state ed said they would not be liable if the data breached, which was pretty incredible and different from most data companies. Um, and yet, as you write, after InBloom collapsed, another nonprofit that's partially funded by Gates called Data and Society issued this report about InBloom, a retrospective that was supposed to teach us the lessons of InBloom. And they had the nerve to actually write that the parent pushback was irrational and that InBloom was so open to attack because it had been, quote, too transparent and too open. So um, even retrospectively, they were teaching the wrong lessons. InBloom was incredibly secretive. The Gates Foundation was incredibly secretive. Even to get the contract, we had to have a major press conference in New York City and, you know, with our lawyers and lots of people participating. And they were asked to testify repeatedly by the state legislature and the city council, the Gates Foundation, and they absolutely refused. Um, I think there were two major hearings that they refused to testify. And finally, at the very end, when they were about to lose their contract that they finally agreed to, but even then they were very deceptive about what they were doing. So can you talk a little bit about how, and it's so ironic because, of course, they weren't respecting student privacy at all, and yet they are very, very protective of their own privacy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I have an entire chapter in the book dedicated to this issue of transparency or non-transparency because it's such an important feature of the Gates Foundation. You know, bottom line is this is a nonprofit, tax-privileged, humanitarian body. I don't know what claim or what right they have to the deeply secretive way that they operate or why they just wouldn't, as a matter of course, want to openly discuss what they're doing and to debate what they're doing also. <clears throat> so, you know, as a journalist, before I ever wrote uh, a my first article on the Gates Foundation or established myself as somebody who's going to raise critical questions, I could never get an interview with anyone at the Gates Foundation, and I asked many times. And if you talk to other researchers, investigators, certainly activists who have tried to engage with the Gates Foundation, you find that this is a pretty normative story. But the Gates Foundation doesn't put itself in a position where it really meaningfully, thoughtfully engages with criticism. What it is very eager to do, as the emails that you secured show, is to operate in back rooms in a totally anti-democratic way with public officials. Um, and, you know, it's amazing that you were able to, you know, it's so, you have to be so dogged to file these public records requests and to go through the motions. And I think this was your experience, too. 
Um, I think you have a, actually a funny anecdote, if I remember correctly, when you actually got the documents. But you have those posted. It took me a year and a half, and we didn't get them until the day after John King announced his resignation from the state education department to become the deputy secretary of education of the U.S. Department of Education. Literally the day after he announced his resignation, they finally delivered the emails to me, actually to our lawyer, which was so indicative that he was holding them up, you know, until he felt that couldn't hurt him anymore. And, you know, in that way, you know, it was like the secrecy of it all, of the Gates Foundation infected the state education department as well. And so their tentacles to protect themselves then creates a barrier between citizens and their, you know, elected representatives, their their public agencies, the government, because the Gates Foundation has more control over those communications than, you know, any member of the public, including the state legislature, who literally could not get the Gates Foundation to say a single word. Yeah. And, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, Bill Gates isn't having these back channel and backroom conversations because he's like a really brilliant, you know, strategic mind on education or he has great ideas. You know, Bill Gates is not an expert on education policy at all. The only reason he's in these rooms, he's sending these emails, he's coordinating these campaigns is because he is so obscenely wealthy and he has and he can use his money to buy this influence to get into this place. So, you know, it, it's very easy to get fatalistic about this and to believe um, that that's just the way the world works. But that is something I really am arguing in the book, that another world is possible. And I'm inspired by that activism that you've done, the way that you and other and teachers and parents got together and they, you were able to um, dispatch within Bloom before it really got up and running. But to your question, you know, really what was in Bloom, you know, one way to think about it goes back to, you know, the idea of Common Core being engineered around the interests of the ed tech companies, you know, the software companies that can create new software. If you have this rich data stream of students' personal information, um, you know, you can imagine what this big data could mean to a software company that's trying to create education or Bill Gates has this idea of, you know, highly refined, personalized education that could be specifically adapted to the specific student. So the more data you have about a student, you know, the, the more rich the, the educational experience could be. Well, theoretically, but, but it's all through a me- mechanical algorithm and a computer program. So it's personalized only to the extent that there's a formula that supposedly allows it to be personalized, but it's taking real human beings out of the equation altogether. And though the Gates Foundation and Bill Gates was very clear, they kept on saying, oh, we don't want to, you know, we just don't want to uh, uh, impair the relationship between teachers and students. We just want to make their lives easier, specifically for teachers. The PR was always the teachers are asking us, they're begging us for this thing. And the yeah. teachers I knew were saying, no, no, we don't want that either. We don't want our our data being used in this way. And we certainly don't want our classrooms to be invaded and dominated by these computer programs. Um, not only does the Gates Foundation try to control the discussion and the debate through its funding of reports and advocacy organizations that it funds, It also has had a tremendous influence on the mainstream media. And this is one of, I think, really one of the strengths of your book that many people might not know. 
Um, the foundation provides grants to outlets such as NPR, BBC, NBC, The Guardian, The Seattle Times, and many others, which have given largely positive coverage of many of their initiatives. But the one that you focus on, especially in the book, is how the New York Times um, ran regular columns called Fixes that were written by two journalists who run an organization called Solutions Journalism, which gets millions from the Gates Foundation and which pays them six-figure salaries. Um, can you talk about Solutions Journalism and the Gates-funded initiatives they promoted in their New York Times columns? So the Gates Foundation, I think one of the most important accomplices in uh, Bill Gates, um, sort of his, his power and influence in world affairs has been the news media, has been journalism. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for this. One of them, though, I do think is because the foundation is donating so much money to journalism, including to many of the newsrooms you mentioned. And, and it's very hard to track and trace all the money that we're talking about. Um, in the specific case of the New York Times, um, so Bill Gates has this idea, you know, the, the ways that the Gates Foundation is changing the news media are too many to explain right now um, on, on this radio show. But one way that they're doing is they're funding something called solutions journalism. They believe that the doom and gloom focus of the news media of what's wrong with the world is creating cynicism and that the world is actually a really great place, that we're becoming a more equal place all the time. And we just need to create a new brand of journalism called solutions journalism um, that helps explain um, to explain the world in those terms of what's working, what's working in the right way. Um, so one way that the foundation has done this is they've helped fund a nonprofit organization called the Solutions Journalism Network. Um, two of the heads of that organization for years were also columnists at the New York Times. And they used their columns over the years on several different occasions to talk about the work that Bill and Melinda Gates were doing, the work of the Gates Foundation, groups that the Gates Foundation funded. And to my eye, as I read them, they all seemed uncritical. Um, so it's a phenomenal conflict of interest if you have outside employment at a Gates-funded NGO and then you're working for the New York Times as an independent journalist and promoting the work of uh, one of the funders of the, of the outside group that you have. And I think, you know, just to be clear here, you, you found you noticed this conflict of interest before I did. And you contacted the New York Times ombudsman. And I don't think you got a response, did you? No response, no response whatsoever. And, you know, we continued to write about it because I was pretty outraged how clearly the lack of disclosure violated the New York Times' own principles that you can find online about how uh, journalists should really be wary of writing about things where they're personally involved. But beyond that, if they have a conflict of interest, there should be complete disclosure. And so what we found is certain of Bill Gates's favorite initiatives, whether it be New Classrooms, which is an online program that was developed here in New York City, or well, more specifically, um, Bridge International Academies, which is a for-profit chain of schools in Africa and India, they would repeatedly write puff pieces about these 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 um, initiatives, which in many ways had very negative results. The UN uh, Rapporteur on Education had written reports against um, Bridge International. 
stating that it's planned to outs uh, Liberia Liberia's plan to outsource its education system to this private company was a violation of its obligations under the sustainable development goal um, and that there were all sorts of problems with the, this chain of schools and then they wrote another one another puff piece of bridge uh, academy right after um the arrest of a Canadian academic who was investigating their schools in Uganda, which was, by the way, covered in the Washington Post. But a few days later, they ran this column again, praising Bridge Academy and not even mentioning the arrest of this um, of this investigative uh, academic who was looking in, into the conditions of their schools. And so I saw this over and over again. You finally wrote about it in the Columbia Journalism Review, and I think you had some conversations at that point with the New York Times, and 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 let it, tell us what happened then. Um, so the, the the columnists agreed with me that they should have been disclosing the outside ties that they had the Gates, the Gates Foundation, and they said that they would run up the ladder to the editors, and the editors. I don't know. I talked to one editor at one point, and they cited technical difficulties they'd have. Of course, they don't want to issue a correction saying all of these columns had undisclosed conflicts of interest. It's not in their interest to do that. So I wrote a follow-up article like a two years later or a year later, again, the Columbia Journalism Review followed up again. And this time, um, they agreed to correct six of the columns to belatedly disclose that the, that the writers of those columns had outside employment for an organization heavily funded by the Gates Foundation. So, yeah, it, it had an interest lot. in these particular initiatives. The it Gates Foundation. Lot. Yes, right. They're writing in the, in the New York Times about the Gates Foundation or work that the Gates Foundation funds, and they need to be clearly disclosing that they have outside employment at an organization heavily funded by the Gates Foundation. Um, it's a classic conflict of interest. It's journalism 101. What really journalism 101 is you avoid conflicts of interest. Right. You, you disclose them if you can't help it, if it's a rare situation, but you really should be avoiding conflicts of interest. So, yeah, I mean, the New York Times is a character in my book. You know, I found and I was able to, you know, the, the record has been changed because of my reporting. You know, does they that never, I think they said they didn't have to correct the British international stories because that those had been funded by Bill Gates personally and not by his foundation. Yeah, it's a strange logic. It's a strange logic. That's what the columnist said. I mean, the New York Times editor, I found, I think I had found 15 columns of theirs that had mentioned Bill and Melinda Gates or the Gates Foundation or work they had funded. And they only corrected six of them. And they wouldn't really, the New York Times editors, when I was writing the story, wouldn't engage with me to say, why are you correcting six and not 15? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a problem, but it, it's, it's really an anecdote for a much bigger problem. This isn't just happening at the New York Times. There are very few news outlets, major news outlets, legacy outlets, especially in the States, that are untouched by the Gates Foundation's funding. Either they're receiving funding or they have a columnist who has outside employment at a Gates-funded organization or journalists are going to a Gates-funded uh, training. You know, th this yeah, yeah they, I think the Educator Writers Association, where m many of the education journalists go every year, the Gates Foundation helps fund that and and basically helps decide who are the speakers and what are they going to be, you know, talking about, educating them or brainwashing them. I don't know. It depends on your point of view. 
Yeah, so, it's, it's a, let me just say real quickly, it's, it's, yeah. it's one case where the Gates Foundation isn't just donating money, as we innocently believe. It is clearly buying influence. And if you, think about, if you think about the Gates Foundation that way, it becomes much less of this unimpeachable philanthropy and really more of a political organization that we have to hold accountable. And I say this as a journalist, that I think that all journalists, all newsrooms should immediately stop taking all funding from the Gates Foundation. It's introducing far more harm, um, and there's just too long of a history of problems with transparency and accountability that we should really st- we should really say no to this charitable gift. So speaking of his personal wealth, um, he often uses his personal wealth um, outside of the foundation to get his way as educate, in education. Uh, one of the instances you describe in the book is how he gave $2 million in 2012 to get charter schools on the ballot in the state of Washington to allow the state to authorize charter schools, even though voters had previously voted against allowing charters three times in Washington state, 1996, 2000, and 2004. Can you explain what happened next? So just big picture, you know, Bill Gates is a big fan of charter schools because this is, you know, privately managed public schools. Again, the primacy of the private sector, neoliberal solutions. Um, and this, this, what we're talking about here, and again, I love citing when uh, the great reporting that has been done, because there has been some great journalism. It's rare, but it has been. So this is what we're talking about is reporting from the Associated Press. Um, so, yes, exactly as you said, that voters in Washington state had repeatedly said no to charter schools in this state. Um, the Gates Foundation, because of the rules, the, the few rules we have about private philanthropy, they're not allowed to engage to directly fund ballot initiatives. But remember, uh, Bill Gates has $120 billion private fortune. As a private citizen, if there's things politically regulatory that the Gates Foundation can't do, there's nothing stopping Bill Gates from using his personal wealth. And that's what happened in this case. After the, the state voters in the state repeatedly said no to charters, Gates put up a very large um, donation to advance this ballot initiative, and it passed by a razor-thin margin. I think it was like 50.69%. Um, and even after that, uh, there was a legal challenge. It went to the courts, and the Gates Foundation was funding uh, a charter association group in Washington State, which was able a, – a few, a handful of charters had opened up at that time – so Gates was funding this NGO in the state of Washington, which was so able- the court actually ruled against allowing charters in the state because it would take money away from the public schools. And then Gates used his personal money to try to get one of the judges who had ruled against him unelected by giving money to his opponent who actually lost. But then they changed the law to create, I think, a separate funding stream for charter schools which would allow them to be established. And that was when the Gates Foundation gave a lot of money to the Washington Charter Association to get the law changed. So now they do have charter schools in um, in the state of Washington. Um, but I think this air- example, it just shows so clearly, you know, that Gates really does have a political agenda and he's operating, you know, this is really money in politics. He's using his obscene wealth to try to overturn the will of the people in a really blatantly obvious anti-democratic way. You know, is he really deserving of all the praise and accolades we give him as, as an altruist? 
or is he really better understood as a power broker and somebody who we should challenge? So one example, which I think is really important, especially here in New York City, which you do not mention in your book, is mayoral control, um, which is an issue right now in New York City because we're facing um, a vote. Um, mayoral control is either going to be renewed or lapsed or amended uh, by June of this year. And we've just had a series of hearings across the city on mayoral control, which have been very well attended. And I'd say about 95% of the people speaking, whether they be teachers, parents, advocates, or community members, are vehemently against uh, renewing mayoral control as is. Um, now, this has came to a fore as a very big issue um, in 2009, just like now when there was a going to either lapse or be renewed. There was a fierce debate. This was when Mayor Bloomberg was still mayor, and Bill Gates secretly donated $4 million to the pro-mayoral control campaign called Learn New York, which did a lot of advertising and lobbying. We found out that they got he'd given this money only after um, Bloomberg had won the renewal of mayoral control with very few changes. But Gates later explained why he prefers mayoral control to every other system of governance, namely, you know, most often selected school boards. Quote, you want to allow for experimentation. The cities where our foundation had put the most money in is where there is a single person responsible. In New York, Chicago, and Washington, D.C., the mayor has the responsibility for the school system. In other words, those remarks explicitly show how this top-down structure of mayoral control, which in itself is anti-democratic, makes it far easier for Bill Gates to push these experiments, as he openly calls them, which they are experiments, um, on millions and millions of public school students. And so the autocratic um, sort of structure of the Gates Foundation and allowing Bill Gates to, have to push his personal political preferences is, is made easier um, where there's only one person running the public schools in these very large districts as well. Yeah, and I'll just throw in, you know, this is as good a time as any, is that in the United States, the U.S. tax code delivers incredible tax benefits to Bill Gates personally for his charitable donations. Um, so he's able to um, sidestep the estate tax, which would be taxed on his wealth when he dies, and a huge tax also on capital gains from the accumulated wealth of the, his stock holdings. So when he's when he's engaging in politics in this way and we're giving him tax benefits for this behavior, it really boggles the mind and it really is difficult to place these activities under the common definition of charity, or to understand why we would build, would give Bill Gates not just applause and accolades, but also all of these tax benefits for this kind of behavior. What's fascinating is that despite all the influence he and the foundation have exerted on education policy, Melinda Gates insisted in an interview that she gave in 2019 that they do not have, quote, outside influence, especially as compared to, quote, a group of parents, for example. What do you think she meant? What do you think she was talking about there? I really don't know if she's delusional or disingenuous, but it makes no sense. You know, uh, I mean, they operate with an incredible amount of hubris, especially Bill Gates, but I don't think that Melinda French Gates is that far off. 
they really believe that their outsized wealth entitles them to keep throwing the dart. Collateral damage be damned. You know, it's not just that they're failing in their educational agenda, but kids and teachers and others are actually being hurt by what they're doing. And there has to be a point where there's a process where we can really challenge what they're doing and say that this model of power does not serve students, does not serve schools, does not serve democracy. I think we're getting to that point. So maybe here we are. I hope so. While you write about the Gates' immense influence on public health, agriculture, and education, uh, there seems to be an underlying theme that he believes that only market forces can innovate and commercialize whatever new reforms and products are needed to improve human outcomes in all these areas. Um, despite the overwhelmingly positive PR that he's gotten, generally in the media, it changed a bit with the pandemic. And you write about that for the first time, Gates was receiving negative coverage, especially as regards his insistence that COVID vaccines should be patented. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I think it really bears some analogies also in, in terms of the education uh, arena. Um, so the pandemic was in many ways the kind of the zenith of Bill Gates' philanthropic career because you had this worldwide pandemic happening and you had, it was quickly decided it was going to be solved through a vaccine. And Bill Gates had decades of experience working on vaccines through public health interventions. So, you know, he said that we have relationships with governments. We have relationships with pharmaceutical companies. We know we need a vaccine here. Um, and so he was really able to step into a void where a lot of elected leaders, especially Donald Trump, were not exercising real ambassadorship on a global level. So Bill Gates could step into that void and play an air, a very influential role in the pandemic response, especially as pertains to how the poorest people on Earth would get access to a vaccine. So Bill Gates promised, um, you know, he was operating behind the scenes. He was on TV almost every night as a public health official, even though he has no public health credentials. Um, he dropped out of Harvard. He doesn't have an undergraduate degree. Um, he promised that he would deliver vaccine equity, that the poorest people on Earth would not be put to the back of the line. Um, but instead, his plan presided over what became known as vaccine apartheid, you know, Pharmaceutical companies prioritize sales to the richest nations that could pay the highest prices. And the poorest people on earth sat there at the back of the line, sometimes for years waiting to get their first immunization. So, you know, Gates, uh, you know, his hubris and the network he had in this charitable complex procurement mechanism he made, he was going to make market forces work for the poor. Um, there was, be, you know, this idea that charity would be able to overcome like the, the obvious logic of the marketplace, which is selling to the highest bidder, it just didn't work. So it's important to note also in this story is that there was an alternative plan on the table, which is this idea of a people's vaccine. You had poor nations around the world. These are nations the Gates Foundation claims to serve. You had public experts around the world saying we should waive the patents, uh, the monopoly patents on these vaccines and get every manufacturer in the world, every capable manufacturer up and running, turning out vaccines to get shots in arms. Um, so that was a popular um, position, political position that was on the table. Bill Gates spent down a lot of the political capital he had built by going on TV again and again, defending and apologizing the monopoly patents uh, of big pharma. And of course, a lot of this, this dogma that Bill Gates brings to this issue attracts back to his work at Microsoft, a company whose own profits and revenues turn on the same 
intellectual property rights and monopoly patents of the pharmaceutical industry. So for, for Gates, it's a very personal and a very dogmatic and very ideological um, perspective he brings to this issue. So the Gates Foundation has still evinces a total lack of respect for student privacy with their lobbying for the College Transparency Act, which we've been active in lobbying against, which would overturn the prohibition against the federal government collecting personal student data. Do you see any evidence that they have changed their ways in recent years and learned from their mistakes? No, I, I think that, you know, you know, Bill Gates' view, his worldview the, the driving dogma, you know, animating Bill Gates' philanthropic career is this idea of hubris. He really thinks that he is right and righteous in everything he does. He's like the smartest guy in the room, a man born to lead. He has the best ideas and he has, you know, an incredible wealth that allows him to buy his way into, you know, the corridors of power to decision making tables to make sure that his voice is heard. You know, you don't need to, to go through this exercise again and again. We now have two decades of the Gates Foundation's work that we can look back on and we can see. I mean, let me ask you, what, what do you think? Do you think that, that he's really changed, that the Gates Foundation's changed, or are they incorrigibly sort of guided by, what, what do you think? Well, I don't know. They're less aggressive in the area of education than they used to be, especially K-12. So they seem to be focusing more on math education yes. and I yes. haven't seen any real positive or negative outcome of that. So I think they've been a bit chastened recently, but I certainly don't trust them. Yeah. Um, we, this is such an important book and I really hope that everybody buys it. Uh, Tim Schwab, thank you for being here tonight and talking about the Bill Gates problem. I'll put a link to how you can purchase the book uh, in the resource section of WBI and the podcast. I could talk to you forever. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for so much for writing this book. I really think it's important. Uh, this is Lainey Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM, Pacifica Radio. Our show is also available as a podcast if you missed the live version or want to recommend it to a friend. Also, please consider becoming a member of WBAI or a special supporter of this show Talk Out of School by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. There's no other show on the air that deeply delves into the issues affecting our schools like this one. You can also contribute online at WBAI.org. We really need the support of listeners to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in the city that doesn't run any ads. We will be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful and be safe. And thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone.
is the mic check for Cat Radio Cafe. No testing. Testing. Tune into Cat Radio Cafe Tuesday night at 9 here on WBAI. I'm Janet Coleman. I'm David Dozer. Displaced playwright on Tuesday, January 23rd at 9 p.m. We'll celebrate the life and work of the critically acclaimed poet Hugh Seidman, who died in November and was one of the original members of the WBAI Quintet of Poets, whose regular readings here began in 2004. We'll be joined by fellow poets Dean Nerksy, Susan Wheeler, Jeffrey O'Brien, and Michael Heller, and artist Jane Holzinger, Hugh's wife. Tuesday night at 9 here on WBAI. Cat Radio Cafe. Hey, the cats, drink coffee. When all curled up in cold weather listening to poetry on WBAI. Cats fur for poetry. They do. If you're filing taxes, you may be eligible for some pretty unique deductions. For instance, there are write-offs for clarinet lessons. Or if you hired your cat for pest control, apparently there's a tax break for that too. But if you don't think you'd qualify for pet-related deductions, you could just donate a vehicle to WBAI. It's easy, free, and tax-deductible. Here's how it works. Call 866-WBAI-CAR. That's 866-922-4227. Or complete the online form at wbai.org slash donate your car. From there, our vehicle donation support team will take care of everything, including the pickup, sale, and provide you with a donation receipt. If your vehicle sells for more than $500, you'll also receive a 1098C tax form. So, instead of writing off your cat patrol, you can support programs like the Cat Radio Cafe by donating a car, truck, RV, or boat. Call 866-WBAI-CAR or visit wbai.org slash donate your car to get started. from Brooklyn. Claudette says, keep up the awesome work, WBAI. The work you do in sharing information that would normally not be shared on mass media and essential news programs. Keep running the information that the public doesn't hear anywhere else. Keep informing us on news that the public needs. Thank you so much, Claudette. We love your message to us, and thank you for your contribution. You can join Claudette, who contributed to WBAI for the MLK Collection with a gift to keep the station running. She gave us $75. Give us whatever you can. Join her and others who support WBAI. Please call 212-209-2950. Become a sustaining member, a WBAI, a BAI buddy, or a contributor. 212-209-2950. Or go to our website, WBAI.org. Click on the green square with the peace dove on it and become a BAI buddy, a contributor. Call 212-209-2950 or go to give to WBAI.org. 
or there's always an or send a check or a money order to pacifica-wbai it's tax deductible send it to wbai of any amount send it to 388 atlantic avenue in brooklyn brooklyn new york 